Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This episode for the Business Week ended 2nd December 2022. This is Ian Haydock. This time, safety debate as more of the Canimab data reported. Amyloid discussions continue at Alzheimer's meeting. China COVID unrest affects the country's biotech sector. And Merck's CMO talks about post-Key Tudor plans. First off, you may note there are only four stories this week, as one story on Blenrep's US withdrawal was inadvertently selected this week, although it was actually covered in last week's episode. Our sincere apologies for this, and in the spirit of the season, please consider this a small gift from us in the form of a little time given back to you, rather than spent listening to me. Detail results from the Phase 3 Clarity AD clinical trial of Azi and Biogen's lecanemab in patients with mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease or mild Alzheimer's showed slower cognitive and functional declines over time. But concerns have emerged about deaths from brain hemorrhages, particularly in people on anticoagulants. The Clarity AD results presented on 29th November at the Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease, or CTAD, meeting in San Francisco, and simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine, also showed low rates of amyloid-related imaging abnormalities relative to other trials of anti-amyloid therapies, according to the investigators. However, Mandy Daxon writes, the CTAD presentation of the data also disclosed five cases of cerebral macrohemorrhages including two among placebo-treated patients, with three deaths from the severe brain bleeds, two of which involved patients treated with both lecanemab and anticoagulants in the Clarity AD open-label extension study. Presenter Marwin Sabah of the Barrow Neurological Institute explained that causes of cerebral macrohemorrhage included cerebral amyloid angiopathy, APOE4 genotype, presence of microhemorrhage, which is evidence of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and anticoagulant medications. The latter may be particularly concerning for prescribers and patients, given the age of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's and the number of these who may be treated with anticoagulants for stroke prevention or atrial fibrillation. However, Sabah said, let me point out that there was one cerebral supermacrohemorrhage-related death that occurred in the randomised study, and it occurred in the placebo group, not in the treatment group. The two lecanemab-treated open-label extension study patients that died after cerebral macrohemorrhage included a 65-year-old woman who was an APOE4 carrier and was treated with the anticoagulant TPA for a stroke who had a hemorrhage and died. The second was an 87-year-old man who was not an APOE4 carrier and was being treated with the anticoagulant Eliquis for atrial fibrillation. He had many falls and pneumonia and developed a macrohemorrhage four months after initiation of lecanemab open-label treatment. Eliquis was stopped. The patient subsequently, because he had atrial fibrillation, had a myocardial infarction and died from cardiopulmonary arrest, Sabah explained. These cases show that the causality with lecanemab is a little difficult. But I understand that people want to say that there's some causality. These things are continuing to be explored, he continued. The point here is that the rate of macrohemorrhage is low. It's only 0.6% to 0.7% compared to placebo. It does go up with anticoagulation, 
and that might be a relative risk that needs to be managed, might need to be discussed. Michael Irizarry, who's AZI's Senior Vice President of Clinical Research and Deputy Chief Clinical Officer for Alzheimer's Disease and Brain Health, said during a media briefing following the CTAD presentation that the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board overseeing Clarity AD monitored ARIA cases and the treatment of patients on anticoagulants and in July recommended that patients on anticoagulants could continue on the study if they signed updated consent forms that outlined the macrohemorrhage risk. Ivan Chung, who's chairman and CEO of AZI's US operation and global Alzheimer's disease officer, said the revised consent forms were first delivered to trial sites in August. One thing we do not know is the background rate of macrohemorrhage with anticoagulant use in the older population, he added, noting that more research is needed to understand whether the rate seen in lecanemab-treated patients is higher than expected in patients receiving anticoagulant therapy. Sticking with the CTAD meeting, Mandy also reports that two highly anticipated phase 3 readouts for two different anti-amyloid antibodies were presented on the second day of the meeting. The first for Eli Lilly's Denanimab with a positive outcome and the second for Roche's Gantanerumab with negative outcomes. The data confirmed that removing amyloid from Alzheimer's patients' brains can slow disease progression, but questions remain around how fast and deep amyloid clearance must be to offer a significant benefit. In addition to detailed top-line results from the failed Phase 3 Graduate 1 and 2 trials of Gantanerumab on 30th November, Day 2 of CTAD included a presentation of Lilly's Phase 3 Trailblazer ALZ4 clinical trial, which showed that at 6 months, patients with early symptomatic Alzheimer's disease who were treated with denanimab had more rapid and deeper clearance of amyloid from their brains than those treated with Biogen and Azai's Aduhelm. Lilly's Trailblazer ALZ4 readout did not show what impact the rapid, deep amyloid reduction that denanimab provided had on disease progression. However, the lower-than-expected amyloid clearance seen in Roche's graduate studies with gantanerumab, which resulted in numeric but not statistically significant slowing in patients' clinical decline, and a post-hoc analysis showing better efficacy in patients treated with a drug who achieved amyloid negativity, seem to confirm that deeper reductions in the toxic protein confer substantial benefit. Lilly also noted that there was no safety disadvantage in Trailblazer ALZ4 associated with rapid and deep amyloid clearance. The Nanimab, which targets a modified form of beta amyloid plaque called N3PG, did not cause a higher incidence or more rapid occurrence of amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, a common safety consideration for amyloid clearing therapies that can cause severe edema or brain hemorrhage. Donanimab reduced brain amyloid levels from baseline by 65.2% at 6 months compared with 17% for Adjuhelm, a key secondary endpoint. Donanimab significantly reduced plasma PTAU217 at 6 months compared to baseline, but Adjuhelm did not achieve this exploratory endpoint. An important factor in Lilly's strategy with Donanimab has been the drug's rapid impact on amyloid levels, the company's head of medical denanimab, John Sims, told Scrip. 
We are working on a very simplistic concept, which kind of applies to most diseases, that the more robust you can deal with the pathology, and the sooner you can deal with that pathology, the better the patient will do, Sims explained. That early clearance looks like it predicts to have greater effect on the downstream biomarkers, hopefully better effect on the trajectory of patients. And so that early clearance and how deep you get, we think, matters. As for why gantinirumab's amyloid reduction in the graduate studies was not at a level that generated a significant clinical benefit, investigators participating in a Q&A session after the presentation of the data noted that all of the data to answer that question are not yet available. The whole of the biopharma and health-related sector in China, from new drug developers to generic makers, but with the exception of nucleic acid testing firms, is experiencing strong headwinds from a variety of socio-economic factors, with the recent public unrest in the country only serving to add to industry's challenges. With the central and local governments repeatedly vowing to stick to the current but increasingly unpopular COVID-0 policies, many cities around the nation have seen growing public unrest and large crowds of protesters over the past few weeks. Brian Yang writes. The developments are complicating China's reopening plan and follow a planned relaxation of some of the most restrictive measures, for example a shortening of mandatory quarantine periods and smaller, more targeted lockdowns, but some of these have now been rolled back. Although certain Chinese developers in areas such as mRNA and antibodies continue to receive investment, The overall funding flow has largely dried up given the raft of wider macroeconomic challenges. Facing a capital crunch and the renewed prospect of widespread lockdowns in many cities, many health companies in China are recently reporting dwindling revenues and profits, with some now seeking cost savings by restructuring or raising money from divestment of manufacturing sites. In early November, Suzhou-based innovative drug maker Seastone Pharmaceuticals disclosed the closure of its Suzhou production site, sending shockwaves across the sector. But Seastone was not the first Chinese innovative pharma company to disclose such moves. Others include Harbor Biomed, which also announced plans to out-license assets and sell off selected assets, including its contract manufacturing and development organization to Wuxi Aptech and Wuxi Biologics. Entering 2022, Other biotechs, including Innovent Biologics, as well as Seastone and Harbour, had already had to deal with lengthy lockdowns and disruptions to their operations. The funding crunch puts further strains on the sector, which relies on constant fundraising to support its R&D activities. Back in the heydays of 2019, aiming to become full-fledged operations, many Chinese biotechs listed in Hong Kong and raised large amounts of funding to build their own manufacturing capacity fueled by rising valuations, easy money and a desire to build out integrated operations and pipelines from the pre-clinical through to commercial stage. But the tide now appears to be going out. In addition to the wider socio-economic situation and fundraising crunch in China, domestic biotechs are also facing other commercial challenges. An overcrowded immuno-oncology market and a model heavily reliant on licensing in products from overseas partners in some cases mean they have little room to manoeuvre. 
I.O. competition is now so fierce in China that manufacturers have been slashing prices aggressively in order for their products to be included in the national reimbursement coverage list. Finally, when Merck Co. Chief Medical Officer and Head of Global Clinical Development, Eliav Barr, took over the position from Roy Baines earlier this year, it was the latest transition in a broader leadership change that has been underway at Merck since 2021. The new guard is tasked with laying the groundwork to ready the company for the approaching loss of exclusivity for Keytruda. Merck's reliance on its blockbuster sales has become a point of concern as the LOE approaches. Barr spoke with Scripps' Jessica Merrill recently about the leadership transition and why he's confident that Merck can deliver new medicines to refill the portfolio before a big patent cliff expected in 2028. I'm not that worried, honestly, Barr said, discussing the pressure to develop the next generation of commercial drugs to ease through the loss of Keytruda. It's not a question of being complacent. We really have a pipeline that's moving forward, and it's a diversified pipeline, he said. On the business development front, Merck was rumoured earlier this year to be in merger negotiations with Cigen, the antibody drug conjugate developer, but a buyout never materialised. Even so, Merck is interested in ADCs as a prong in its oncology strategy, and Barr reiterated the firm's interest in the technology. It is looking to invest broadly in ADCs, he said, and doesn't necessarily need to do a big business deal. He also talks about cancer vaccines and plans in the cardiovascular area following the Acceleron buyout in the wide-ranging interview. Of Merck's decision to home in on cardiovascular disease as another core franchise, he pointed to the large unmet need, despite available treatments, and the array of high-quality biomarkers in the field, as well as Merck's own heritage in the space, having been the developer of drugs like Zocor and Vitorin. While there are R&D challenges in the therapeutic area, like the need for costly cardiovascular outcomes trials, he said Merck is well-equipped for meeting those demands, if it is the right product. That's all for this time and the special edition of four must-know things this week. Thank you for listening and a reminder that the articles discussed here are linked in the story accompanying this podcast. They formed just a fraction of Scripps coverage last week and log in to access all of our content or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.